get our Bibles out, and uh, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we're continuing our series of the commands of Christ. We're looking at cautions. Cautions. And we're going to find a, a major caution for us uh, this morning. Had a good crowd at the 815 service, and it was early, but everything went well. Glory, hallelujah. So um, I, I feel like uh, just keep speaking over and over and over, 815, and then life groups, and now the 1030 hour, and tonight, uh, 5 o'clock, uh, looking forward to Lord meeting with us. Let's get, uh, as I mentioned, let's get our Bibles out, Revelation chapter 3. And once you've found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, and uh, we'll look at verse number 1 all the way down through uh, verse number 6. Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come unto thee as a thief uh, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray once more. Lord, we do thank You for this message and the caution that You give us. Lord, we're about to find here that uh, this is a, a church that, that needs some help, some admonishment, some correction. And, and Lord, today I believe that maybe there's somebody in here within the sound of my voice that needs this same correction. Lord, I know in, in, in just studying this uh, these notes and and looking over this passage, Lord, you've spoken to my heart. I pray that, uh, Lord, uh, that uh, the hearers today will also have a work done in their heart, and that your Spirit will have free course to break up fallow ground and to establish things that need strengthened. And and uh, Lord, I pray that you just bless this service. I ask that you give me the right words to say. I pray that you be again with the the hearer, Lord. Uh, may we leave here not just being hearers then of your word, but then putting these things into practice and being doers. And uh, Lord, bless this service. We ask your name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. A little more than two thousand years ago, Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, right outside Jerusalem, and commanded his disciples to go and plant churches all over the world. And church planning is exactly what they did. They would head into Jerusalem and, uh, and see the, uh, the church plant that would explode in growth in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, some Bible historians believe that first church may have had over 100,000 active members at its peak. That's pretty hard to fathom. As the church grew, Satan, no doubt, would bring persecution to that first church. Instead of diminishing the church community, it caused a multiplication of that church all over Israel and then all over 
the world. You understand with me today that church was on fire for the Lord. And just as we would have maybe a bonfire or something like that, and a fire is going, when you throw wood or a rock or some large object into that wood, what happens is those embers then begin to go out and they break free and they begin to spread. And that's what persecution brought to this early church. The church was on fire. The church was growing. It was a healthy church. It was a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle. And persecution came from Satan into that church. And instead of snuffing out the fire of that church, it just spread throughout the globe. We rejoice in that early testimony of that church. Many decades later, John the Apostle is commissioned with writing the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus, through John's hand, wrote this book to seven different churches that existed during the first century after Christ's ascension. These seven types of churches still exist today as you study through the different churches and you study their characteristics and their accomplishments and their shortcomings. No doubt as you look at various churches here in America and even overseas, you see the similar pattern and similar behavior in other churches. It's important to understand that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they are not John's admonition to those churches, but rather Jesus Christ Himself speaking directly to these churches. If you have a Bible that has the words of Christ in red, you find that chapters 2 and chapter 3 are not black, but they are red with the words of Jesus Christ speaking to the church Himself. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 1, the Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You may ask this question this morning, well, who is he that has these seven spirits of God and the seven stars? The answer simply is Jesus Christ himself. Reminded in Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, that Jesus Christ purchased the church with His own blood. He paid the necessary price so that the church is not Satan's. He paid the necessary price so that the church is not the pastor's. He paid the necessary price so the church is not a collection of all of its members. They're the owners. No, the church is purchased by Jesus Christ and He Himself is the sole owner of the church. By way of introduction this morning, it's important for each of us here to understand just how important the local church is to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to earth and personally trained His apostles to do what? To start churches. To start churches. He used the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. We find Him over and over and over training the twelve on how to start churches. He would train them on how they are to behave. He would train them on uh, what He desires from them and how to lead and how to uh, be like a shepherd and, and, and oversee but, but uh, uh, love and care for the people of God. In the book of Acts, it's written about the actions that these disciples would make in starting churches and establishing early churches. It's not only Him training, we find in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, we find them doing the things that Jesus Christ taught. 
from the book of Romans all the way through the book of 2 Thessalonians, we find letters written to local individual churches and how they should operate and fulfill their purpose. So we have the initial training of the disciples. We have the disciples doing the work and uh, the church multiplying and, and over and over new churches are being established throughout the world, throughout the, the, uh, the uh, eastern region over there. And then you find that Paul the Apostle is used of the Holy Spirit to then tweak things so that this church can be operating long term in the way that God intends for the church to operate. He's... He's uh, uh, commending them in areas that they've gotten right, areas of faith and of, of prayer and of diligence and, and, and soul winning. But he admonishes in areas where people are uh, abusing the Lord's Supper and, and where they're abusing tongues and where there is disorder and chaos within the church. First and Second Timothy as well, uh, as the book of Titus, were written to two pastors about how to lead the church. God spends the entire New Testament talking about church. He cares about the order of the church. As I just mentioned, Acts chapter 2, verse number 28 tells us that Jesus purchased the church with His blood. Ephesians 5 compares the church to the bride of Christ. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 states that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 5, compares the church to lively stones where one layer is built upon another. We understand that Jesus Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundational piece of the church. And every doctrine, every teaching of, of the Bible is aligned up to Christ. And He had taught His early disciples those stones, the early apostles, their teaching lined up with Christ. They became layer number one. And on top of that, you have another generation of teachings, another generation of people that come to know Christ. And they are built upon the doctrines of the apostles and upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He's building up His church layer upon layer. And my friend, if you are part of the church, you are another Peace, another lively stone that is laid upon another to make up the church. It should be strong, it should be fortified, it shouldn't be easily knocked over. This is the church, the pillar and ground of truth. But yet in Revelation chapter 3, we find that if Christ commands that we are to strengthen something, we must deduce that God sees that there is a weakness in the church. Let me say that again. If Christ is commanding us to strengthen the things which remain, we must deduce that Christ notices there is a weakness that we must fortify. And so today, what is these weaknesses that I speak of? Well, it seems that each generation is turning out fewer and fewer devoted Christians who value the local church. You know, there was a day in America when everything was closed on a Sunday. When a large majority, not everybody, but a large majority knew that Sunday was the Lord's Day. It was a day for us to go to church and to assemble and to practice our faith. Now I can't help but notice when I wake up on a Sunday morning that it seems like I'm one of the only ones in my area. The roads are clear. I can get 
Now, on a normal day, I can get from my house to the church in 20 minutes. On a Sunday, I can get here in 15. You know why? Because everybody's still sleeping. This generation doesn't hold the local church to high value, to high regard. There was a day when Baptist churches were filled to overflowing and building projects were happening over and over just to accommodate the amount of people that were rushing to church and now it seems that we have to entertain people just to keep them in the doors. Why is this? I think because partly because our children look at our religion and see that everything isn't quite what it seems. Let me put it plainly. The way many people act at church doesn't match up to the reality of how they live. We have a face that we uh, bring into church. We uh, know how to act. We, uh, we smile and we make everyone think that everything is fine and dandy. And, 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 and we polish ourselves up and we come into the doors and, and we say kind things to everyone, but we go home and we're angry and we're embittered and we're nasty with the folks that are around us. We become chameleon Christians and begin to blend into our surroundings. But then Sunday comes again and maybe on the way to church you've gotten in a fight. and You're fighting and fighting and fighting, but as soon as you walk in those doors, hey, how's it going? Am I the only one this morning? Not this morning. Hallelujah. I drive alone. I drive alone on Sundays. <laughs> but uh, this, this morning, right, we all have areas in which we become hypocritical. Our children grow up and they see the hypocrisy and then decide they want nothing to do with our church. I propose that many Christians are spiritually anemic and weak. They've allowed spiritual atrophy to set into their spiritual muscles and have little capacity to wield our greatest weapon, the Word of God. Few know what God's will is for their day-to-day life. And even fewer are devoted to doing God's work. God is calling on Christians within our churches to strengthen those things that remain. God does not want you or me to be spiritually weak or anemic, but rather He wants men and women who live lives filled with faith and faithfulness to our calling. This morning I want us to look at three components to strengthen the things which are remain, uh, that remain as we continue on our theme of the commands of Christ. Number one, I want us to see the church's rebuke. The church's rebuke. And this church, they had a reputation in their community. Letter A, their reputation. Look with me in Romans, or Revelation rather, chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, church, that thou hast a name and that thou livest. The church in Sardis did a great job of guarding their reputation. If you would have asked the church across town or across the state uh, about the church of Sardis, most everyone would give high praise to this church. But we all know that the corporate uh, church is, is made up of individual members, and this church was filled with people who looked godly. 
They were a church that knew how to pray in public church services. They knew when to say amen. They knew how to carry their Bibles. They knew how to dress properly and carry themselves in the service. But their hearts were dead. They had a reputation that on the outside looked pretty good. There was a lot of noise and busyness around the church. There was uh, the, those who visited the church and got a surface look were impressed by what they saw. They would walk away feeling as though they had been around God's people and that they worshipped God. Yet they had a form of godliness. But we know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 5, God tells us that we are to beware of this and that there are churches that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They look polished. They look the part. We may put them on a pedestal and say that person truly is a man or woman of God. But deep down in their heart, they deny the power of God. They deny the filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and they uh, are, are, are just a shell of godliness. There is no substance behind it. And so, we must church, look, church, that this, this early church, they had a good reputation. But their reputation did not match their reality. Let her be their reality. Revelation chapter one, verse number, uh, Revelation chapter three, verse number one. Look at the end; those last three words of that verse. What does that say? And art dead. Say it with me, church. And art dead. Outside, things are happening. Things look good. Inwardly, you're dead. What's going on in your heart? When Jesus was training His future church planners, He warned them that there would be imposters. There would be people that looked the part on the outside, but inwardly they're not the part, and would make their way into the church. Uh, go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And this is again where Jesus is training His disciples that one day would be church planters. And He's saying, as you lead these folks, as you guide them, you must beware of the influence of people that will try to creep in and will try to destroy the things that you are trying to establish. Uh, ultimately, the things that God is trying to uh, establish. And so, Matthew chapter 13, verse number 24, the Bible says this, And another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He saith unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant saith unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. Let while ye gather up... Uh, or, uh, let's see here. I lost my spot. Uh, and he said unto them, An enemy uh, hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou uh, then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up 
also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Sadly, many people have come to church with the reputation of being a child of God, but one day they will be thrown into hell. Their hypocrisy will be exposed. My friend, today, I've heard many of folks, uh, I've heard uh, pastors, pastors' wives, church leaders, uh, uh, the people that we may look at and say these are some of the greatest folks, maybe these are the folks that, that desire the closeness of God the most, and yet they have moments in their life, they have a moment where they recognize that they must remove the blindfold and truly expose that they have not accepted Jesus Christ to be the personal Lord and Savior. And they are uh, uh, not true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody here today, you uh, uh, sit in here and you, uh, you make everybody around you believe that you are saved. But my friend, you and God both know that you are not truly a child of God. Don't be embarrassed today. Don't be, uh, uh, don't be somebody that has such pride and arrogancy to say, oh, I'm not willing to let people uh, uh, see the true me and see that I am not saved. Uh, I pray that today you will settle that and that you will know Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior. However, there are others that are saved, but are not as godly as they would have others to believe. They carry their Bible to church, but they don't read it at home. They say amen during the church services while using a completely different vernacular at work. They dress modestly and carefully at church, but then they uh, go to the beach and they wear uh, a devil's uniform. They sing Christ-honoring music at church, but their earbuds play music that glorifies sin and secularism. Many churches today are infected with this. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're Deep down deeds are dead. I remember years ago, one of my uh, one of the churches I, I grew up in, just outside Philadelphia. I remember there was a man uh, in that church. His name was Ralph, and Ralph was a very polished individual. Came every uh, service and uh, had a suit and tie, and and uh, he always had a nice trim haircut. And he would go around and he would greet everybody. He was one of uh, just a very kind individual, and and uh, nobody would suspect anything about Ralph. And while Ralph was kind and friendly and acted the part at church, he would go home and he would gather emails and phone numbers of people in the church and begin to send out messages to everybody in that congregation saying how the pastor is teaching heresy and that uh, uh, this person is doing this and trying to create strife and division within the church. These are young Christians, many of them, not knowing how to behave or how to rebuttal somebody. This is Ralph. He's polished. He's a good man from what we can tell. What do I do with this information? And Sure enough, after a little bit of time, some people came to the pastor and they said, hey, we're getting these emails, we're getting these phone calls, and Ralph is declaring this stuff for us, and, and, uh, and it just doesn't seem right. It seems like it's creating division and discord among the brethren. The pastor began to uh, culminate a file 
of all of these different uh, things that Ralph was saying that was uh, creating uh, problems in the church. And then Ralph wasn't content just to attack his own pastor and other church leaders. He began to talk about other pastors in the area. Began to tear them down and say how they were uh, preaching heresy. And finally, one day, our pastor got up and he had to rebuke Ralph and began to lay out all of the things that uh, Ralph had uh, been accusing and been uh, been going around and creating strife and divisions in the church. And and Ralph was rebuked and he was uh, church disciplined uh, from that church. And I remember the spirit in that room as Ralph was upset and Ralph uh, began to lash out and his true inner character came out in that service. The story doesn't end there. Ralph was gone for a while, but I remember coming back to church probably about nine, ten months later, and there was Ralph again. And we had gone to the pastor, my family had gone to the pastor and said, hey, you know, Ralph's back. And our pastor began to share that Ralph had a change of heart. Ralph had a spirit of humility and went to the deacons and went to the pastor and went to all those that he had wronged and apologized and understood that he was in the wrong sharing these things. And listen, my friend, today, I'm thankful for a church that has an attitude of restoration when people are sideways, when people, uh, their, their outward deeds may be, uh, may, may look right, but their inward heart, the inward actions are, are evil and they're divisive and they're, and they're wrong, but the church recognizes it when some Somebody has a change in attitude, a spirit of repentance. The church says, welcome back, my friend. Let's get this right. Let's, let's do things the way that God wants us to do with them. So my friends today, as we look at this point, we understand that Christ had a scathing rebuke for this church. Their reputation was positive, but their inward deeds were dead. Their hearts were dead. It would be foolish for us today not to heed this warning for our church. To examine our own hearts. Maybe God today is speaking to you and He's trying to reveal some things in which you are being a hypocrite. And we need to get this right. Church, heed Christ's rebuke. Number one, the church's rebuke. Number two, the church's responsibility. The church's responsibility. Letter A, that the church's responsibility is to, it's time to wake up! I did it with the 815 crowd. I scared about three-fourths of them, okay? A little different in this room. Uh, but, uh, hey, wake up! Wake up! It's time to wake up, church! Look at verse number 2 of chapter 3. What's those first two words? Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are all that are ready to die for i have not found my works perfect before god remember therefore how that thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent look at this phrase if therefore thou shalt not watch i will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour i will come upon thee go with me over to first thessalonians chapter 5 first thessalonians chapter 5 We're going to find here that Christ, through Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he's going to reveal a little bit more clearly as to what he's uh, speaking about here and his desire for the church to wake up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 6, the Bible says this, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. 
But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for an helmet, the hope of salvation. We are not of this world. We may live in this world, but we are not of this world. And so while our world is waxing worse and worse, and while Satan seems to be having a field day with our world, and while he desires to attack us as Christians, we must wake up and see that there is a real threat. There is a real enemy that desires to take us down. Why was the book of Revelation written? We must ask this question. So that the church would know the end game. In order for one to have a proper orientation, he needs to know three geographical points. Starting point, current location, and end point. We've established in the beginning of this message where the church was, what God's original intention was. And we've talked briefly about the early church history where we've allowed uh, through the first point God to reveal in our heart our current situation, our current state. Are we truly uh, 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 obeying God and having a heart that is properly before Him? But the book of Revelation and the prophecy that's contained therein shows us what is going to happen in the future. It's an end point of where we are eventually headed. The Gospels in the book of Acts give us our starting point. We know our current location and condition, but where is it? Where is that finish line? Well, it's the rapture of the church. One day Christ will look down and He will call us to be with Him. It's a calling away, a catching away in, in the clouds, and he uh, will uh, we will be with him. It'll, he'll come as a thief in the night, as the Bible says. But until then, we are to occupy till he comes. Whether or not you are watching for it, Jesus is coming back for his church, and we are told to watch for his return and be ready to give an account. You might say this morning, hey, why did we open in such a somber way the service? And why did we read Scripture? And, and why did, uh, Pastor Andrew, you encourage us to, to confess sin and make sure that uh, the time is right? Because, listen, my friend, today could be the very last time we gather together as a church. Who knows? Maybe before the message is even done, maybe this storm comes over our heads. Christ is in the clouds and He calls us up to be with Him. And I don't even get to finish the service. Right? You'll see pastor faster than ever. Right? Uh, and, uh, and so, hey, listen, we ought to be watchful. We ought to be anticipating that in any moment, Christ could come back. So let us steward the time that God has given to us. Let us anticipate His arrival. We are the children of the light, so we are to walk in the light and be aware of what is going on around us. First Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is constantly on the prowl, looking to devour you. And if you are not sober-minded and vigilant, he will make you and your family yet another casualty. Christian... It's time to wake up. Could you imagine if God were to call you out of here? He were to rapture the church and you were in the midst of a sin? 
Imagine the shame you would bear for eternity. Knowing that, oh, Jesus caught you. By the, by the way, friend, Jesus sees you now, whether He's coming to rapture the church or not. The eyes of the Lord are upon the entire earth. He sees both the evil and the good. He knows what you're doing. It doesn't matter whether you're in the deepest, darkest, uh, secret corner of your house. God sees what you're doing. He knows the imaginations of your heart. He knows what's going on. You can't uh, deceive Him. But imagine the shame if He were to come and we were to be doing that. I hope, I hope that when I pass from this earth, uh, I'm either sleeping, because that's the most spiritual thing, amen? Uh, or, uh, or I'm on my knees praying, reading the Bible, or I'm, I'm maybe in church, or I'm working in some way, shape, or form to help establish the kingdom of God and help uh, uh, follow uh, God's call and will in my life. Hey, Christian, it's time to wake up. But not only are we to wake up, we are to work out. It's time to work out. Look at verse number 2. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 2. Be watchful and, look at this word, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. When I was in high school, um, I would play basketball all the time. I would, any free time that I had, I'd grab a basketball and I would shoot. I'd run up and down the court over and over and over again. Uh, I just loved running. I was uh, very fit. And now I've understood that uh, I've changed shapes a little bit. It's become a little, little more round. I've gotten out of shape and into another. And you know, uh, as I was playing basketball and things, I took it for granted how uh, I had exercised myself and became uh, uh, pretty uh, decent, pretty uh, strong, and I could run for uh, great uh, lengths of time. And I remember getting into college, and, and I remember my senior year, after being there uh, about uh, three and a half years, I remember joining a intramural league and, and uh, thinking to myself, all right, I'm getting back to my high school days, I'm going to get back into basketball, the thing that I love to do. And, and I remember uh, getting out there and I started the game and, and uh, I was just excited. Again, I, I didn't feel like I was that separated from my high school days. It's only three and a half years. And, and so I thought, hey, this is going to be great. And so uh, I get out there and the opening tip off, we get the ball and I'm coming down the court and uh, all of a sudden it just feels like a pound of bricks hit my legs. And uh, my my lungs begin to just swell up, and I'm heaving, and I'm huffing and puffing, and all of a sudden I'm I'm getting a little dizzy, getting a little lightheaded, and my throat's getting all dry, and I'm thinking I need some water. And I look at the clock, and it's only been 15 seconds. <laughs> and I realized right then and there I'm not in shape like I should be. You know what, just the other day I was out with our teenagers and we were uh, at the house next door and uh, we're playing some basketball with the, with the teenagers and uh, we were playing a, a game that I, I loved and played all the time in high school called Knockout. And uh, I'm not going to go into all the rules and all that stuff, but uh, Knockout, when you have a lot of people all in line, uh, it, it's, it, it, you get some rest in between each round. Uh, but then you step up and you shoot the ball and you got to go uh, retrieve the ball and uh, make the shot and then pass it off to another and then go to the back of the line. And so uh, as long as there's a lot of people, you get some rest and it's not uh, too exhausting. Well, then I ended up advancing and got all the way to three people. 
It was me and two other guys uh, in that mix, uh, and I think April might have even been in that mix. Uh, but uh, there were three three folks all together, and and we're shooting and chasing after the ball, making the shot, passing the ball, going to the bag, and it's just over and 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 over again. And um, I begin to get pretty tired. I began to realize I'm not in shape, and uh, I'm very competitive. But this is what began to go through my mind. If I don't quit, I might die. Okay? And I began to just think to myself, how can I either get these folks out quickly so that I can win this, or how do I make it look like I'm not giving up? And sure enough, everybody's just racing around me, and and I'm just seeing stars. And I, I just got slower and slower and slower until finally somebody got me out. And I said, glory, hallelujah. All right. Whew. I realized right then and there, I'd allowed my muscles and I'd allowed uh, my body to break down and, and atrophy. You know what? I, I realized that, hey, it's time to get back in shape. It's time to put some work in. And so how many of you are familiar with P90X? Everybody familiar with that? Okay, it's, it's an intense workout, about 30, 40 minutes or so of just nonstop, go, 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 go. And about five minutes in, you're breaking all kinds of sweat and you're going crazy. And so I got through that. I got through the first, uh, the first uh, uh, exercise uh, day and, and I'm feeling pretty good. And I went to bed and I'm like, this is great. All right, I'm on good track. You know, when I woke up, I didn't feel that same way. I think just about every muscle in my body was was screaming at me. And I thought to myself, is it worth it? <laughs> yes, it's worth it. It is. You know what? Spiritually, we are weak. Many of us are weak. Their faith muscles are small. Atrophy has set in. Anytime temptation comes along, we fall. Anytime God sends a trial along your way, you question God. Anytime life gets challenging, you panic. Why? Because your faith muscles are weak and anemic. You look, you may look spiritually fit, but when life gets hard, you're just about ready to fall apart. Can I remind you, Christian, when temptation trials and hard times come into our life that's god's uh that's god's way of taking you to the gym and getting you to strengthen those things which are uh, to remain they are ways in which you can exercise and work things out hebrews chapter 12 verse number 11 says this now no chastening for the present seem to be joyous but grievous Nevertheless, after it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised, there's that word, thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which uh, is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. I want to give you this morning three things that will remain. Three things that will remain through the test of time and beyond. The first one I want to reveal to you today is the Word of God. The Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse number 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word 
of God. God's Word is powerful. It has existed long before the world began. It will exist long after the world began. It is powerful. Ephesians, or, 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 I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 says this, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word is the most powerful weapon, but it is no good to you until you take the time to learn how to use it. You see, my friend, when Satan comes knocking on your door and he tries to tempt you, just as Jesus had when he faced Satan, Satan was rebuked. Satan, uh, Jesus rather, used a rebuttal of sharing God's Word. He used God's Word as the weapon to combat Satan's temptation. When Satan comes knocking on your door, you can't say, hold on, Satan, give me just a second. I've got to study my Bible real fast before, before you tempt me. No, he's coming, my friend. The warning is right now. He's coming and knocking on your door, perhaps even this week. Are you prepared to face your enemy again? I think that yesterday of uh, uh, somebody here in, in the church that I'm, I'm very, very proud of, very proud of the work that they're doing. And last Wednesday, we kicked off our restart for our discipleship program. And many of you that have gone through this know that there is some memory verses that are required for homework and uh, to begin working through those. And each week, they have to memorize two verses and and uh, uh, I began to lay out that that's the expectation. And listen, we, we need to memorize Scripture. We need to memorize Scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And so uh, we need to get Scripture in us. And this person was a little uh, worried and fearful that they weren't going to be able to complete uh, the work and memorize the necessary Scripture. And so they immediately began putting uh, uh, work into it. And they came to me yesterday and uh, just kind of out of the blue started to to share these uh, one of the verses that they're studying and um and, and just quoted it. And it took me a little bit just to understand what was going on. And I realized, oh, uh, this person has been working and they're, they're sharing with me the fact that they are they are memorizing these verses and they're they're, they're now sharing them to me. And this person went through and word for word quoted Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, being therefore now justified, and uh, began to go through that verse and got it all the way. And I, I said, I am so proud of you. That is fantastic. And we rejoiced together. And that person said that they took that challenge of memorizing this Scripture and they, they put it to practice. And they, they're writing things all over the place, on the backs of envelopes, on uh, binders, and on pieces of paper, repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again trying to memorize God's Word. They're putting in the effort. How much Scripture have you put the effort in this week to memorize? I don't think there's anybody in here that knows all Scripture. I know I certainly don't. I can quote some verses as I just quoted Hebrews 4.12, but uh, there are many, many, many verses that I still don't know and I'm working through. Are you putting in the effort to memorize God's Word like you should? It's something that should be strengthened to remain. 
Not only should we strengthen the Word of God and, 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 and allow that to pierce our hearts and, and us to memorize it, but we ought to also study the will of God. The will of God. The will of God is found in the Word of God. As long as the Word of God lasts, so will the will of God. The will of God, as I mentioned, it's found in Scripture, and really, in, in a very basic study, all you need to do is go on uh, Google or uh, on Blue Letter Bible and just merely type in were, uh, will of God, and you'll find a whole slew of verses that God says specifically, this is my will for you. One of them is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. As Christians, God, God's will for you and me together, we are to always give thanks. We ought to be a thankful people. Not just around Thanksgiving, right? Oh, month of November, I better post about how thankful I am of the people that are around me. No, in everything, every part of your life, you ought to be thankful for God. Why do we sing the praises of God every single Sunday and uh, show forth our praise in some attribute or work that God has done? Because we are to be a thankful people. That's not the only thing that God commands for us. Uh, there's chapters that uh, expound on, on God's will. and They talk about how we are to pray without ceasing. We are to quench not the Spirit. We are to despise not prophesying or, or preaching. Just as a parent has a will for their child to obey and be in line and, and be what God wants for them uh, to be, God has a will for how He wishes you to behave. It is your duty to find it and do it. Strengthen the things that remain. Don't. Let these things die. So get the Word of God in us. Understand what the will of God is for us. And then do the work of God. The work of God. John chapter 9, verse number 4 says this, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus knew that His days on earth were numbered. In essence, He was saying, I must redeem the time because the days are evil. I must do the work of My Father. The night cometh when no man can work. Understand with me today, when Jesus uh, created Adam and He put him in the garden, He put him there for a purpose, to work, to dress the garden and to keep the garden. He was put there to work. After the fall of man, God did not remove work from us. He said, you're going to keep working. And you know what? It's going to be a little bit harder now. You're going to have tears. You're going to have uh, different things. You're going to work from the sweat of your brow. It's going to be uh, harder work, but I still want you to work. And you know, when you study uh, what God wants for us in the future, when we are with Him forever, it's not sitting back, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Guess what? We're working. And it's going to be a joyful work. We get to be in the presence of God forever. So, in a sense, it is sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. I, I'm glad we get to be in the presence of God. But hey, we're not, we're not sitting back uh, on lawn chairs with lemonade. We're getting to work, and we're doing a work for God for the millennial uh, reign and, and beyond. And so, there is work that needs to be done. There's work both in our own hearts that needs to be accomplished, but work here uh, at the church that needs to be uh, followed. And I hope that you, you're putting effort and you're putting priority uh, on doing a work of God. So this morning, 
We have, uh, uh, we have the rebuke uh, of the church, and we have the uh, church's responsibility, and, and then uh, thirdly and finally here, the church's remnant. I'm thankful that in many of even the deadest churches in America, there are those who have not lost their focus and are doing their best to please the Lord. You know, today, I, I, uh, I, several years back when I was in college, I traveled with a singing group. And we drove from California all the way across the country and stopped through some churches along the way and, and got all the way up to the northeast. And we visited a total of 73 churches in uh, just a three-month period of time, two-and-a-half-month uh, period of time. And, and we saw a lot of churches. We saw some churches that were thriving. And we saw some churches, especially in the northeast, that were just dead. To try to get somebody to just show up to church was almost an act of God. Right? Uh, we would show up at some churches and there would be but three people in an auditorium about this size. And I'm not talking about on a, uh, an off night. I'm talking on a Sunday. I'm talking the pastor was uh, embarrassed because he said, I've been promoting this for uh, months now and, and I'm just not having the fellowship of, of my church family and, and we're just, uh, we're not going anywhere. And I've sat with pastors at, at dinners who cried and felt like they were a failure because the church was shriveling up and dying. My friend, it was a reflection on the church's heart uh, as a, uh, each individual, uh, just as uh, we talked about, they were maybe outwardly okay, but inwardly they were uh, uh, dead and they were dying and uh, it just took time for uh, the fruit of their inward uh, actions to come forth. But I remember even in some of the deadest churches, I remember seeing young men and young women, older men, older women, that were the remnant in that church. That said, I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do the work of God. I'm going to keep going soul winning. I'm going to keep making sure that I'm giving my tithe. I'm going to keep making sure that the, the church has somebody that is greeting and that is opening doors and that's printing off bulletins and that is encouraging the pastor and is leading music and is doing everything that they can to be the remnant in the deadest environment. I'm thankful for those folks. And there was a remnant in this church, letter A, that were faithful. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 4, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garment, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. How do we achieve this? How do we become a faithful people? Uh, what do we have to do in order to be in this classification? Well, James chapter 1, verse number 27 Helps us to see what a true church, a, a, a faith-filled church, a faithful church rather, uh, is. And that is uh, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. It's twofold. God has called us to be faithful and loving even the lowest among us the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and maintain a heart that is unspotted from the mud of secularism and sin. Churches today want to throw holiness out the door. They just want to cover some kinds of concepts in the Old Testament. 
But Peter commands us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 15 and 16, but as he hath, uh, but as, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle, because it is written, "Be ye holy, for I am holy." John even expounds on this in First John chapter two, verse number fifteen: "Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him." You cannot walk by faith if you are going to choose only to do the things that you can uh, see in the sight, in your own sight. For too many Christians are focused on what they can see: money, family. My own personal belongings, they forget to live for the one they cannot see. They're faithful to do the things that invest in eternity. Soul winning, preaching, holy living. While we walk by sight, when we, when we walk by sight, we love this world and seek to build our own kingdom. But when we walk by faith, we love our Lord and seek to build the kingdom of heaven. They were faithful. You can always count on these folks to be in church. You can always count on these folks to be doing uh, the work, memorizing Scripture and, and, and following the will of God and, and doing work around the church. They were sincere. They were faithful day in and day out. But not only were they faithful, they were faith-filled. Revelation chapter 3, and this is our final point for today, but I believe perhaps one of the most important points that we'll speak on this morning, and that is uh, in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 5 and 6, look at this first phrase, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name, I will not blot uh, out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You might ask this question, how does one overcome? The first verse says, he that overcometh. Well, how do I overcome? Does he have to work real hard to become a super Christian? No, the answer actually is very simple might even surprise you. Go with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Plainly, the Scripture answers its own question here on who, who is the overcomer. 1 John chapter 5. I want you to see here what, what Scripture has to say. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 5. Who is he... That overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no set of works you can possibly do to be one that overcomes. It is mere putting your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. My friend, I want to reach out to the person that doesn't know where you're going to spend eternity when you die. Maybe there's somebody in the sound of my voice right now. I want you to just focus in on me real quick. I know the time is late. Focus in on these last few moments. You might pillow your head every night and wonder what's going to happen when you breathe your last breath on this earth. 
you might enter your car with a little bit of fear, wondering if this car were to spin out of control or I were to get in an accident or some way uh, uh, pass from this life, I don't know what would happen. My friend, I want to ease your fears this morning. I want to help you see what God through His Word has for each of us. He tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Understand with me that God is the essence of perfection. He is holy. There is none like Him. There is none beside Him. He is holy. And from the moment that we, tr- we trespassed and transgressed against God, we became sinners. Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall of man. How Eve took of the fruit that she was told not to, and her eyes were open, and she uh, was, uh, uh, became a, a sinner, and she gave to Adam. And because of one man, the Bible says, uh, one man, that sin passed uh, down from generation to generation to generation. It's in our nature. We are all sinners before a holy God. The standard of perfection is here. We fall short. My friend, even if it's possible for any of us to just commit just one, one sin, that would still condemn us. All of us, I think, can agree today, we are all sinners. You've lied. You've cheated. You've disobeyed. All of that condemns us. Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, For the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Death shows us that we cannot be in the presence of God when we pass from this life because of our sin. There is a payment that must be made because of our sin. But thanks be to God, He did not leave us in this decrepit state. He didn't say, I I want you to face your own punishment and your own separation from God. No. God looked down in John chapter 3, verse number 16. We said, we, we find that for God so loved the world. My friend, He loves you. He loves me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 6, 23, as I mentioned, for the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, He came with one purpose. And that was to do the work that God the Father had commissioned Him. And He came to this earth and He lived a perfect life for 33 and a half years. And finally, uh, uh, mankind, we betrayed God and we nailed Him to a cross. And on that cross, He was lifted up. And on that cross, He bore the sin of all mankind And He looked up to God the Father as God the Father looked down on Him and saw the sin laid upon Him. And and Jesus looked up and He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which is my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? God was forsaking Him because He had the sin of the whole world upon Him. He was taking the punishment from me and from you and laying it on the sinless Lamb of God. He died. He was buried. 
He rose again, showing that He had power over sin. Showing that He had power over death. And He holds today the keys of death and hell in His hands. And He offers to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. God extends for you and for me a free gift of salvation. And all we simply need to do is have a moment where we pray. And it's not just the words that come out of our mouth, but it is the reflection of a true and pure heart before God where we say, I am a sinner, Lord, and I am in need of You saving me from my sin and taking me to heaven when I die. And just as these folks here, this remnant that was in this church, they had a moment where they put all of their faith, not in their works, not in sacraments, not in a religion, but they put it in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. And I extend to you this morning, everyone over in, in, within the sound of my voice, if you want to be an overcomer, if you want to be somebody that overcomes this world, you must surrender and submit and have a time where you've called on God to save your soul. I hope there's somebody in here today that you, you hear what I'm saying and you understand what the Word of God has to say. Now you'll put it into practice. We'll give you an opportunity to do that here in just a second. This morning, God has called for lost sinners to repent. He is calling you to overcome the sin of this world through faith in Christ. But to those of you who are already saved, God is calling you to live a life with inward character that is greater than your outward reputation. Many of us have allowed spiritual atrophy to set in. It's time to strengthen the things which remain. Let's stand to our feet. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We've covered a lot of ground today as we talk about strengthening these things which remain. We mentioned just a moment ago about how to overcome the world, and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I wonder this morning, is there somebody that doesn't know that if they were to pass from this earth, that they would go to heaven when they die? Would you say, Pastor Andrew, please pray for me. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything to make you feel uncomfortable. But would you merely just raise your hand as a testimony saying, Pastor Andrew, I don't know that if I were to die today that I would go to heaven. I'm not 100% sure. Would you lift your hand, put it right up, right back down. Every head is bound. Every eye is closed. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. I see that hand. Anyone else this morning? I don't know if I were to die today that I would go to heaven. I see those hands. In a moment, the piano is going to play. And and I'm going to invite you, if you would like, to come down to the front here. Only if you would like. Only if you feel comfortable. And we'll have a man show you if you're a man. uh, A woman show you if you're a woman. uh, How you can know that if, if you were to die today, that you will go to heaven. We want you to have Scripture in front of you that is true, that is sure, that you can hold on to and know beyond the shadow of a doubt if you were to die, that you would go to heaven. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what anybody else is saying. It's what the Bible has to say. 
I want to invite you in a moment. If you don't feel comfortable coming down to the front, I'll be out in the, in the floor. I'll be happy to talk to you or connect you with somebody that can show you these things. This is a very important decision. How many of you today, within the sound of my voice, uh, Christian, somebody that knows Christ, their personal Lord and Savior, maybe you say, Pastor Andrew, you hit a point today. Uh, uh, there are some things that have become weak. There's some spiritual muscles that have uh, atrophied, and I need to strengthen some things. Would you uh, raise your hand this morning as a, a, a testimony? Thank you. I want to pray for you. Lord, I do ask that you be with this time. I pray it should be with this invitation. I pray that we will uh, put these things into practice and strengthen the things that remain. Be with these decisions, Lord. Be with uh, those that raise their hand in need of salvation today, knowing that, uh, that they can go to heaven when they die. I pray that they will settle that today and make peace with you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.